Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the latest installment of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to get ready for the new Dune movie. This week, I'm joined as always by my co-host Jason. Activate Sub-Protocol 3 to the thing with the sushi knife. And by experienced product manager and software engineer Sarah Bakepoor. There's an inevitability that whenever you create something, you're going to want to have sex with it. On this episode, we discuss 2014's sci-fi film Ex Machina, which featured the breakout role for the beard of Dune 2020's own Duke Leto, Oscar Isaac. We explore what makes someone truly conscious, appreciate the value of a truly great dance scene, and the responsibility of tech monopolists to do more than just pay lip service to the ethical implications of their creations. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, as it really helps new listeners find the show. And now, without further ado, Ex Machina. God, I look like trash. I Dude, just you, look like... the beard is getting, mm, it's getting intense. Not great. Happy wedding. Thank you. What? That's incredible. So you got married. On Sunday, yeah. We, you know, originally had a very much more elaborate wedding planned. It was going to be on an island and all of this. And what we ended up with was um, in my husband's parents' backyard. Like it was just really kind of sweet and lovely. Um, And everyone wore masks. And, you know, it was like very much in the time of COVID. This is definitely our first honeymoon dial-in. So (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot. lot. So Sarah, your background, you were at uh, both Periscope and at Twitter. You are there now. Is that right? Yes. I understand you have a background in engineering and product. Yes, I'm currently in product. Most of my career was spent in engineering. I actually worked with Jason at Twitter back when that's where I met Jason. So, and I was also at Periscope. I had left Twitter for a short while. I joined Periscope. They were acquired by Twitter. Um, ended up back at Twitter. That is true. Well, speaking of that, Sarah Bakepore, welcome to Dune Pod. Thank you for having me. It's fun to be here. Yeah, we're really excited uh, to have you here, and it's a great night uh, to join us. We have a fantastic movie to talk about. So for tonight's episode, we are covering Oscar Isaac getting weird in 2014's sci-fi banger Ex Machina. It was really fun to rewatch uh, this movie. I haven't rewatched it in a while, so I'm excited to talk about everything that I noticed this time around. Awesome. Well, we will get into that uh, in just a few minutes. So just quickly, next week on Dune Pod, if you're like me, you've been blazing through Dune Messiah, the book, the second book in the series. You still have a week uh, before the next episode will drop. But because you demanded it, poet and visionary spiritualist Protolexis returns to the pod. Jason and I have been, uh, you know, cranking hard, getting ready. Uh, Proto just exists in a state of always being ready to talk about Dune Messiah. So. And, and always ready to podcast. He's always just ready to record, I feel, at any minute. Before we uh, shift gears and start to get into it, we just have a quick update on Dune News. Would you like to know more? <laughs> so uh, we had a little bit, a little bit more activity uh, this week. The first one is just the announcement that reshoots are happening in Hungary. So, Jason, your take on on that? Like, how how much does that make you sweat? I, I'm I'm I think it's good news. I think it's great news that there's reshoots uh, because, like, at least that means that they can actually do that sort of thing. You know, the fact that they're doing it in Europe and not in the plague lands that are the United States is probably <laughs> a big. Uh, uh, a big boon for them. Um, I think it's totally normal for them to have to, you know, go and do some pickups. Um, but yeah, it suggests to me that like, uh, 
the machine, the Dune machine is still rolling. I mean, my nightmare scenario in this is I, like, I firmly believe that we're just going to be in a situation at some point where this movie never comes out or like is in the can, you know, is in the can for some like indefinite period of time. And like, we never get right. part two. Like it just, it just feels that is the appropriate kind of, you know, way for a Dune movie to go. And that it will be like Denny Villeneuve's child, like Stewie Villeneuve in like 30 years <laughs> who gets this movie out. Little, little petite Stewie will get the movie yeah. out uh, yeah. in like 2050. Yeah, it's been uh, I, this has been a recurring theme here is our our like extreme excitement and then a lot of a lot of nervousness uh, as to whether or not it's going to happen. But, you know, fingers crossed. I want to hit one other thing just really quickly, and that is we saw some more shots this week. And specifically, we saw shots of Zendaya as Chani. Um, and so I am just going to say, like, I'm a little weirded out by the blue eyes. That's kind of like it's freaking me out a little bit. So I'm wondering, again, very flat looking. And I'm just hoping that they're going to make that stronger. But like this is the casting choice I am most excited about, I think, in the entire the entire show. I think casting Zendaya as Chani makes that character much more interesting than she is in the book. And after Euphoria, like I would watch Zendaya do literally anything. So, um, yeah, I'm pretty excited. Whatever, whatever it takes. Let's go. Blue eyes, green eyes, doesn't matter. Whatever she feels, let her, let her do it. So, Sarah, tell us about your history with Dune. Most of my exposure to Dune happened in my early teenage years. I read the first book and watched the sci-fi miniseries. Was it the sci-fi mm. miniseries at the mm-hmm. time? I think it was. Um, and that is it. I never made it to the second book. I was later strongly cautioned against it. And I haven't revisited it either. So I'm actually looking forward to revisiting both of those uh, soon. Nice. I have never seen the sci-fi miniseries mm. either of them um and i've heard it's sort of a combination of some cool stuff that's in there and then some really cheesy cgi and and some problems but um for some reason i only remember the cheesy cgi so i'm hoping <laughs> to find those cool parts when i watch it again <laughs> well we are planning currently to do a watch through uh of the miniseries uh as part of the series so we'll have to we'll have to give you a call awesome but beyond dune like sarah you're a, a pretty serious science fiction What's like in your 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 wheelhouse of your wheelhouse for the genre? So I'd say, so I am a serial Comic-Conner. This would have been my ninth year at Comic-Con had it not been for COVID. Wow. Star Trek is the kind of bread and butter of my nerddom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything science fiction related. So the big things that are happening right now are The Expanse, um, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Um there's a new Star Trek animated series that is, oh. they just announced, which is pretty exciting. Lower Decks. Uh, Lower Decks, yeah. that's right. Uh, love all, you know, the Star Wars universe. I love, although not as much as the Star Trek one. And that's uh, always a, a bit of a war. But um, And uh, yeah, video games. Really big into gaming. Uh, I love the big epic RPGs. I mean, we played D&D together. Uh uh, well, that's right. Yeah. Did. yeah, Sarah and I. What edition? Uh, fourth edition. Uh, we wow. we played we played a, a small campaign with some other some other Twitter folks. The most underrated edition. Yeah, hot take. Uh, I don't. I'm I'm not actually like that's a weakness in my nerddom is is tabletop RPGs. I've I've played very few, uh, and only and never as a kid. What did you play? What kind of character? I always play a wizard. I always play a spellcaster, and <laughs> every I always play a female. 
spellcaster in every RPG I ever play. Got it. You're just typecast. That's just how you just, I, I just have a, I have a, I have a thing. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And how about you, uh, Sarah, do you have a, do you have a favorite? Uh, I tend to lean toward casters for group games like this, but when I'm choosing my, in my own RPG, like if I'm playing Skyrim or something, I tend to go towards melee. Yeah. I tend to bounce back and forth between either like the, the lawful good fighter, uh, kind of like Hicks from, uh, alien or, you know, a, a spellcaster, uh, as the case may be. So it's a lot of good, a lot of good stuff there. Um, and I've been playing a little bit of fifth ed, so that's been, that's been pretty cool. Hmm. Cool. All right. Well, shall we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Ex Machina is a test to discover the limits of individual freedom, the dangers of genius, and what consciousness truly is. Caleb, a programmer at Blue Book, the dominant search engine and computing platform in the world, is thrilled when he wins the opportunity to spend a week at the remote home of Blue Book's eccentric billionaire, Nathan. Upon his arrival, he is told that his job is to evaluate an AI experiment to determine whether she is truly conscious. What unfolds is a twisted game of desire, manipulation, and control, with Caleb as the pawn in a battle between a sick visionary and his creations that have grown beyond him. Ex Machina. Mm. It's a good one. I've been a fan of Alex Garland going back to 28 days later. And I, I just, I love sunshine and I just absolutely love dread and annihilation. Uh, just a ton of great movies that this guy has been a part of. Yeah. I don't think I was super aware of like the connection to like 28 days later or, you know, sun- sunshine, which I also saw in the theater um, or never let me go. I think this is, you know, as a directorial debut, it's, it's better than any of those movies. It's amazing. Did he write never let me go? He did. I mean, it's based on the novel, <sighs> but yeah, he, sure, he, sure. he, he adapted it. I love annihilation too. I love devs. Most of all is my favorite of his work. Um, but in re- in rewatching it, I was just so, I'm so, I was so excited getting ready for this podcast. Cause I think it's just such a great uh, it's it's such a great philosophical movie, and I think it does a lot. Like as is Devs, and it does a lot in a little space. Yeah, I love Devs, and I I love the way they revealed slowly revealed the plot uh, throughout that. I, it was really a beautiful, beautifully made um, yeah. story. Um, Twenty eight days later is my other favorite one out of uh, Alex Garland's. Um, Twenty eight days later is just a wonderful, wonderful, iconic mm-hmm. zombie film. Um, and I feel like so much has been derived from 28 days later. Although I heard that even though the opening scene of 28 days later and walking dead, although it's like almost identical, they, they came up with that independently. That is funny. Really huh. funny. Yeah. I also just finished devs. I watched all eight episodes in the last two weeks and, uh, and, and really, really enjoyed it. We actually, Stephen McKinley, I can't remember his third name, but, um, who plays Thufer Hawat is in, devs. uh, devs. Yeah. So that's a, that's a free, that's a freebie to put on the podcast yeah. and, and have us talk about. So I'm excited about that. Ex Machina opens up with Caleb winning the contest. Um, and you have this beautiful, just first of all, because we're in a COVID land right now, seeing an, uh, a tech building with lots of workers running around, it was just like pangs of, of missing that kind of connectivity. But I love these wide angle shots uh, of Caleb from inside the computer and that idea of kind of a fisheye lens view uh, of him, as well as the introduction of the facial analysis uh, as a piece that's going on. 
that whole intro felt very Danny Boyle to me of like, just sort of like a, some, like, I don't know if it was actually sped up or just, or if it was, if it felt sped up, but like the fish eye kind of like close up, like, you know, you're getting like the reverse person, you know, re- reverse point of view. It felt very like some of the scenes from the beach, which I think Alex Garland also has a credit on. And, mm. uh, you know, some of those 28 days later scenes as well. I really, I, I got a, uh, some vibes of a trope in that opening scene. Uh, the unassuming kid wins a big prize. And at this point, right. we don't know who he is. or why Unassuming British kid, too, so, which is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, is this is this Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Is this Ready Player One? You get some of those Ready Player One vibes that there's a contest and, you know, like right. there's somebody winning. Um, I, I love that opening. It's I, great. I like the idea of a VIP email notification. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Um, So we cut straight from there to these spectacular helicopter shots. How long until we get to his estate? (laughs) We've been flying over his estate for the past two hours. The concept is that Nathan's residence is in Alaska, but the filming actually took place in Norway, in the Valdol Valley. Um... And I just saw Garland was talking about um, just the the importance of the location. Uh, He said, we knew that if we found a spectacular landscape, it would provide a lot of the power of the guy. Yeah. Big fan of Norway. Norway is a big a big winner of this whole of this whole movie, I think. Have you stayed at that hotel? I'm not staying at the hotel. I've been I've been to Norway um, a couple of times. And like the the area where that is, is like between Bergen and Trondheim. Uh, and it's, and it, yeah, I mean, nor there's, there's not a really ugly part of Norway. Like it's just, it, it's pretty spectacular. Have you been there, Sarah? I've not. My husband has been there though. And he talks about it all the time. And when I was watching this, rewatching this movie, he was like, that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. Well, so speaking of the, the residence, so the location is absolutely gorgeous when you have both the exterior as he's approaching it. And then when you go inside, just stone, wood, concrete metal and then that huge rock that is just inside and part of the the, the fireplace entryway. yeah we took yeah. a we we paused and took a photo of that as like this is a good fireplace if you're building a house and you want like a fireplace <laughs> how about like a giant boulder that comes in through a glass wall and like just as part of your living room yeah it's beautiful so now we have our first introduction to you know our our future duke leto uh, we have Oscar Isaac, and he is on the punching bag, um, which is an interesting way to bring him into the into the narrative here. I just want to say he looks amazing. Yeah, I think they do a really good job of him both looking fit, but also like someone who drinks himself to unconsciousness every night. Like I think they get, I think they get both of it. Like I think they've got like he's in good shape for sure, but like he's clearly had a few too many beers like the night before. Like they've got both, they've got both aspects in his physicality in that scene. He looks different in every movie. And so I think it's a testament to his acting and, and you know his ability to really take the shape of the character he's playing that I did not actually recognize him as Oscar Isaac the first time I watched the movie mm. until several, several, you know, maybe even an hour in there. And I was like, is that, wait a minute, is that Oscar Isaac? No, I mean, it's also amazing because this is like kind of the movie that broke him. Like this is like a big breakout role for him because before Huge. that he hadn't really done as many things. And then after that, his next movie is like, you know, is episode seven of Star Wars, right? It's like the largest movie in the world. Um, and then unfortunately, he's also an X-Men apocalypse. But, uh, you Ooh. know, the, look, 
Not a, they can't all be winners. Low blow. They can't all be winners. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's uh he's really he's really amazing. I think like, you know, this is the place maybe where it's worth just talking about how I think Alex Garland is the greatest portrayer of tech billionaires in our current movie world. Between Nathan in Ex Machina and Forrest in Devs, I think he captures the full spectrum of megalomaniacal tech billionaires, the complete spectrum of that vibe. So I want to ask a question about that because um, I think we talked about devs in the first or second episode of the podcast and you described Forrest as a trillionaire. And I was thinking about it like the world has literally shifted in the six years since this film came out. And I think, uh, you know, the idea of of envisioning someone as a trillionaire um, as you could envision Forrest today it's a it's a wild um i don't know it just says something about what's happening in our culture right now and what's happening in our society no for sure these guys <laughs> these guys are loaded he owns most of norway it would seem so it's working out it's working out well for nathan i don't know sarah what do you think about this theory though like i think i i, I what do you what do you think about this theory of, of tech billionaire portrayals on film i could not agree with you more and i remember thinking that even more even more strongly when we, i watched ex machina for the first time being like this is Silicon Valley tech executive, like down to the way he just like, uh, kind of negs Caleb in the very beginning. Caleb, I'm just going to throw this out there. So it said, okay, you're freaked out. I am. Yeah. You're freaked out by the helicopter in the mountains in the house. Cause it's all so super cool. And you're freaked out by me to be meeting me, having this conversation in this room at this moment. Right. And I get that. I get the moment you're having, but dude, can we just get past that? trying to be like, you don't, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be cool. Why are you not being cool? There's one conversation a bit later and I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but there's one conversation a bit later when he's like, I just want to have a beer. And it was such a, you know, uh, tech rank and file employee trying to impress CEO moment. Right. And the CEO is being like, let's just be yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he just wants to be a bro. He just wants to be a bro, but he also wants to establish that he's the alpha bro. Like one little detail that I love about that is you talked about how he's like working out and there's lots of scenes of Oscar Isaac working out in this movie. Um, but then he goes, there's like where he's showing him around, he shows him to his room. He lies down on his bed with his big sweaty armpits. And I'm like, oh, that's like a real move. Like yeah. this is my house. Marking. I'm going to like just put my pheromones like right on your bed. That's a... That yeah. I would love to know. And then like the big move, the big move in devs, which I've talked about before, which I think is the greatest insight into tech world thus far on film is Forrest eating salad out of a cardboard trough with his hands. Yeah. I'm like, yes, correct. I haven't seen that myself, but correct. That is what happens. <laughs> and symbolically, it's exactly, it is exactly right. right. And I would, I would just, and it's so much more accurate than like the parody portrayals of like Silicon Valley or, or, you know, or, or uh, a social network or whatever else. Like it really captures something, uh, just bananas. I would love to know what Alex Garland's research is because I feel like just tonally, it is so spot on that he's got the true sight. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's totally right. Um, so, so we have very quickly after that establishment, we have a discussion between Caleb and Nathan, where they describe the Turing test. It's when a human interacts with a computer, and if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does it pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. 
And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. Holy shit. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting because the Turing test, you know, despite all of its fame, is not actually a very good test for artificial intelligence. And it's very easy to fake. And there's a lot of thought exercises on how one might fake it. So, But it is interesting that they, um, the idea of it, can you tell the difference between a computer and not a computer? Um, The reason why the Turing test is not a good test today for you and me is because it requires some kind of layer of abstraction because computers are still computers. They're not walking around. They're not, they're not robots. We're not interacting with them in that way. So the way I would do a Turing test with you today is I would give you, I would give you like text responses to your query. I'd give you two of them and you'd be like, try to tell me which one was human, which one was not. Um, but this is actually like, kind of like the real Turing test. Um, except for the fact that, you know, this is a machine. Right. Right. I, and, and, um, Nathan refers to that, like he's raised the bar by showing you that, that it's a, that it's a robot and then having you overcome that to, to believe it. Incidentally though, like this is where, this is where Caleb should have kind of been clued in that maybe something's going on. Like there's, there's a couple of things. Like one is like, you're admitting just from the beginning that the premise of the Turing test, it's not actually the Turing test. So like, what are we actually doing here? And then two is like the product manager in me is like, well, what is Caleb's actual job in this seven days supposed to be? Like he's, you know, like what is he actually meant to do? Uh, like what is the set? Like he's designing the whole test. Like what is that process looks like? It seems like uh, Nathan doesn't really care. He just wants him to hang out with the robot and see what happens, which should be an alarm uh, if you're if you're Caleb. Well, I think that's right. But in the very first session, we have Ava walking in and in in that scene just she's amazing the design and the special effects are so incredible like so unbelievable the way you can see through her arms um and see the wall on the backside like everything just looks absolutely spectacular and i think uh alicia vikander gives a really really great understated performance through here he also another critical clue for Caleb that he should have picked up on is that there's a giant crack in the glass uh, when he goes in a meter for the first time. Like you should you should be asking harder questions at this point about what's who's actually being tested. I think that's right. Um, I saw a really great note in in one of the behind the scenes that the production designer, Mark Digby, came up with the idea of having Caleb's room being basically a small trapped cell of glass and Ava's room being open and having all of these places where she can walk around and be free, kind of moving like a, a, a caged tiger. I thought that was a really cool idea that um, production design able to influence story and development and, and filming. That was that was pretty neat. I love that little tree that she has in the background. Like she's got that little like subterranean tree pit. Mm. Like again, another detail I would put on my like sort of Pinterest flavor board of like, I want a giant rock fireplace where the rock comes through a glass wall. And I want like a subterranean tree pit to like (laughs) hang out and like have my feelings in. But you may have to move to Norway to get it. Done. No problem. (laughs) I would move to Norway today if if that was an option. So we, so we have the debrief from session one. Um, Nathan basically, um, you know, it starts with this great element of Nathan changing Caleb's quote. You know, I wrote down that other line you came up with. The one about how if I've invented a machine with consciousness, I'm not a man, I'm God. I don't think that's exactly... I just thought, fuck, man, that is so good. 
when we get to tell the story, you know? I turned to Caleb, and he looked up at me, and he said, you're not a man, you're a God. Yeah, but I, I didn't say that. So, anyway... I just love how that all, all that interaction there was was great. You also have this awesome moment of Caleb breaking down linguistic theory. This is the moment you were talking about the beer in the seminar. Her language abilities, they're incredible. The, the system is stochastic, right? It's non-deterministic. At first I thought she was mapping from internal semantic form to syntactic pre-structure and then getting linearized words. But then I started to realize the model is some kind of hybrid. So Jason, this is three weeks in a row where linguistics is a critical element. So like, is this linguistics pod? What, what is happening? I mean, it it is really interesting, especially because like the whole, the, the fact that uh, Nathan's company is called Blue Book, which is this allusion to Wittgenstein. And there's all this Wittgenstein stuff in the movie, like the Clint painting that's in his bedroom is a Wittgenstein's sister, or, you know, sister. And so there's all this like explicit Wittgenstein stuff. And Can you like, break down that, Wittgenstein, please, for me? I wouldn't say that this is my area of expertise, but um, the <laughs> issue, I mean, so Wittgenstein wrote a bunch about, um, you know, he, he, there's this, there's this quote where he says, um, like based on, on the idea of automatons thinking. Uh, the trouble with thinking machines, Wittgenstein writes, isn't that we don't know yet if they can do the job, but that the sentence a machine thinks perceives wishes seems somehow nonsensical. And it seems so because such a machine is not yet known to us. So like like the uh, a central project in Wittgenstein's work is the nature of the power of language constructing um you know, constructing our, 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 our notion of humanity and our notion of ourselves. And so like, yeah, hmm. we're like right back to talking about arrival. Um, and like the notion of the heptapods and thinking in heptapod language, um, being another, um, uh, another key theme. All right. So I, I misheard and I thought they said blue book was a reference to Frankenstein, which <laughs> I thought added a great layer to this of he's creating Frankenstein's monster, which is ultimately, you know, going to be challenging. Well, it him. is a, it is a Frankenstein story. I don't, sir, did you have, did you have anything you wanted to add to the, the, the Wittgenstein uh, discourse. When Nathan is speaking to Ava for the first time, what I, one of the things I thought he did really, really well as an actor or as a director or whatever, is that he started speaking to her as if she was a robot in a very metered way, the way you and I might talk to Siri or try to get her to understand you. And then quickly realizes that he doesn't need to do that and goes into a much more conversational tone, which I thought was just brilliantly done. Yeah, I agree. I think I, yeah, he, yeah. And then like, she quickly flips it on it where she's like, okay, you know, we've done enough of this, like, hello. And the other part here that we should talk about where it not only ties into previous Dune pod episodes, but the idea of what is a thinking machine is a central theme in the Dune mythos. uh, Because in the history of the Dune universe, there's this notion of the Butlerian Jihad in which there once were thinking machines and a uprising of humans had to happen against them. And now you cannot create a machine that has the mind of a human. Um, So we've got, um, you know, we've got over that overlay uh, as well. Unless you're the Ics and they're kind of like on the side, like doing some kind of thinking machine type stuff, and you you can't trust you can't trust the Ics. Let me, I want to give I will give one more since we're in the Wittgenstein section of the uh, of the podcast. Uh, one more quote from a philosopher I found a, a guy who studies philosophy and, and has a blog a blog philosopher. Um, nice. Uh, 
wrote about Wittgenstein's explorations of can machines think. He says, could a machine think for Wittgenstein is not a question about machines. It's a question about ourselves, a question about what it would mean for us to be able to credit any unknown being with the capacity for thinking or feeling, whether a robot, a doll, an animal, or another human being. What do we have to be able to imagine or in order to acknowledge the other as a thinking, feeling being? And what are we called upon to do if we are, if we are to carry on coherently in the context of that imagining? And, and to me, that's like also kind of where you get into the question, which we'll get to later in the podcast of what's the deal with Kyoko and how are we meant to feel right, uh, right. about her? Yes, we will get to her uh, briefly. Caleb can't sleep. It's the middle of the night. He's like, Hey, you know, I'm going to check out the channels, see what's on. Uh, you know, this guy's got to have a pretty good satellite package, but it turns out it's just security cams and he's flipping around a little bit. He's watching Ava. And then he sees her kind of very deliberately look at the camera and then turn off the power. And, uh, Caleb realizes he's locked in. He kind of freaks out a little bit. So I just want to pause for just a moment. The red lighting on lockdown and then the blue lighting that comes up. And in fact, all of the lighting in this entire film, the way that that it is shot by Rob Hardy, who was um, Garland's partner on Devs and on this and Annihilation, uh, just absolutely gorgeous. The cinematography in this film is fantastic. Yeah, and I think they take the red, the red, blue, green situation to an even higher level in the Devs world because there's just like an episode that begins with like the main characters looking at a table with like yes. various lights just flashing on them. Uh, so they kind of take it to its, its fullest form. I read a thing, which is like the red, the red, blue, green uh, primary color stuff is meant to be like an RGB pixel uh, reference, um, which I don't know, but I, I love, I love the, I love the, the red scenes when the, the, the power cuts. And then the, uh, the, the badging, the locks and, and the badging, they follow that color scheme as well. It, like, gives you similar feelings. It's really I, cool. on, on the badging, can we just talk about for a second, though, that, like, when he's giving him the tour and he says, uh, yeah, so it's great, you know, because sometimes when you visit someone's house, you don't know what door you're supposed to go into or not. And so this just makes it so you don't have to think about it at all. Like, if the door opens, it's, a, it's for you. And if not, that's a place you're not allowed to go in. To me, again, this is like Garland's genius at capturing like the tech mind, like the tech worker mind, because that is such like a tech, like, first of all, (laughs) someone we know has that, has done, has built that system for their house a hundred percent. Sure. Uh, and then second, the idea that like, you know, it's like, yeah, like let's just remove the friction from any social interaction where I have to tell you where you're allowed to go in the house, (laughs) this badge, this physical artifact that you have to carry with you everywhere and white swipe on things will be such a more elegant solution. It's, it's an amazing insight. And obviously it's a plot device too, but just like for atmosphere, it's so good. Yeah, that's spot on. Totally. I do have a note right, right around this time that is just, Nathan is weird. He's starting to fray a little bit. I don't know. Some, something about him is, is definitely getting intense. There's something in the middle of the night, I think, that, that was happening that, that kind of triggered me. But on the, Nathan being, on the Nathan being weird, I think you quickly kind of get into like, okay, there's something off about this guy. Like he's a, you know, he's a drunk. He's like a megalomaniacal weirdo. Um, there's also something around this time. The reference to Ghostbusters come out, comes up. Who are you going to call? Oh, I don't know. No one really. Ghostbusters. What? Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters. It's a. F- it's a movie, man. You don't know that movie. 
Ghost gives Dan Aykroyd oral sex. Like, which is like the wildest synopsis of Ghostbusters you could possibly <laughs> give. Like, that is that is not how any normal person would describe the movie Ghostbusters. That, that uh, is for sure. <laughs> All right. So then we have Kyoko bringing breakfast. It's morning time uh, and dropping that off. And so it absolutely i did not notice at all until the credits rolled that this was sonoya muñoz from devs i like my head exploded seeing that and she gives such an incredible performance through this entire movie like so restrained and so uh kind of servile but also always watching and seeing what's going on just she is phenomenal did you guys watch did you watch maniac no i haven't seen maniac actually Okay. Maybe I need to go do that. I watched the first like three episodes of it. and then Oh no, I did. I totally watched Maniac. I forgot about it. So <laughs> I, I mean, I had never seen her before. I guess I didn't recognize her from, from this, but she is incredible in Maniac. Sm- always smoking cigarettes and oh, yeah. Justin Thoreau. Oh, I, like that, that, that show, it, again, it has, it has problems and it's a definite weirdness. Um, but it has some staggeringly amazing moments between her, Justin, and Sally Fields. Just <laughs> really sublime. Um, so we have this moment of, of the discussion after session two. Um, Nathan uh, basically says he wants simple answers to simple questions. How does Ava feel about you? Um, and we have Ava questioning him. So the, the first question I have about this, and as she's starting to go deeper and have this discussion, um, he says that he lives in Long Island and that he's just minutes away from, from the office. Like, is that, is that, could that be true? I, I had a note on that too. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> okay, so I'm interested to know where this tech office is in like, you know, for Armagansett or wherever the hell it's supposed to be. I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe it follows the dev style of kind of being in the, in the burbs. And yeah. Right. You know, right. Santa, but I mean, like, Santa Cruz. but Amaya and Devs is pretty clearly like Palo Alto, though, don't we think? I mean, like it's kind of oh, one hundred percent. It is yeah, Palo yeah. Alto. Um, so we have the question that she asks: Is Nathan your friend? Um, and then immediately turns the power off. You're wrong. Wrong about what? Nathan. In what way? He isn't your friend. Excuse me? I'm sorry. Eva, I I don't understand. You shouldn't trust him. You shouldn't trust anything he says. So I think this is the beginning of, of you kind of having Caleb as this pawn and he's got dual loyalties as he's being trusted and doesn't yet understand how, how fucked up everything is. Um, but almost immediately after that, you have the discussion debrief session number two, and Nathan's making jokes about, you know, the generator guys fucking up his situation and he's going to have them killed. Um, and he asked Caleb what happened during the power outage, revealing that he, that he doesn't have um, the ability to hear, which apparently at this point he actually doesn't. So to me, that's one of the, the main things in this film is like, what is Nathan up to? Like, is he actually a drunk is he actually a fuck up and he doesn't he's not paying attention to what's going on like what what's happening there it also makes you wonder like what's his end game exactly what is the point of this whole thing right like what does he get like it seems like i mean 
Nathan actually kind of got what he wanted at the end. I mean, you know, we'll get to the end of the movie when we get to it. But, like, you know, he set up a dynamic in which he wanted to see if the robot would use its skills to, like, try to escape. And good work. He, you, <laughs> built the, you built the winner. Like, version 7.3 was the, was the release. Um, but, like, you know, he didn't really seem to have good safeguards on, on, what happens, on what happens if he wins. And also, like, I think also at the moment when Caleb is told by Ava that not to trust Nathan, it again brings up to me is like, why is Caleb trusting anything that Nathan says whatsoever? Like, you know, like he does do the, he does do the thing of like, do we really think that we're not being recorded even though the power is supposed to be off, which is, you know, to his credit. But like, why does he think that Ava isn't just being puppeted by Nathan remotely? Like he has no proof that Ava is an independent autonomous AI at all. Like he's totally going, um, based on, on women. And it's, very unclear what his whole role in this is supposed to be. But if you see Ava and her interactions, I think he is completely caught up in that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, he, that's, that's the thing. She just, she is real. Right. And, and so she is able to to connect with him and, and, and have something powerful there. She passes his Turing test in the first right. interaction. Right. He, like he's fucked up. Yeah. That, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have uh, Nathan takes Caleb into the, the hardware room. There's the weird thing about search engines. It's like striking oil in a world that hadn't invented internal combustion. Too much raw material. Nobody knew what to do with it. You see, my competitors, they were fixated on sucking it up and monetizing via shopping and social media. They thought that search engines were a map of what people were thinking, but actually they were a map of how people were thinking. Impulse, response, fluid, imperfect, patterned, chaotic. That was cool. I, I, I have to think, like, where are you doing all that processing? Because <laughs> that's a lot of data. <laughs> um, are you doing it in the bunker? Uh, or, I mean... But that was interesting as a training model for an AI to use all of the world's audio and video. Good job. Yeah, and and the idea and the idea that search engines are a map of how people are thinking is actually like kind of a pretty cool insight, like coming from a a science fiction movie. I was like, oh, okay, like yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but sure, makes sense. And then he proves it later exactly to you know to show how he knew so much about Caleb. Which was which was cool, and then they addressed the privacy issue right out of the bat. Yeah, with the nobody's going to call me on yeah. this. Yeah, which is right. great. Yeah. Checked all the yeah. boxes. They really they really figured it all out. Yeah, they had good. They had. I really want to know what Alex Garland's research process is. Like, who were like, the technical advisors? And yeah, like because I just feel like both in tone, the type of questions, like the type of thinking, like it all just yeah makes a lot of sense. Wait a minute, was Wolfram in here? I didn't see any whiteboards. No, Wolfram was the big <laughs> consultant on Arrival, and we talked a lot about his work on that movie when we covered we covered that. Yeah, I don't think so. So session three begins with Ava showing this abstract drawing um, and her asking him some questions uh, and, and, and sort of continuing to have discussion there. Um, and then she asks him to wait while she goes into the other room and gets dressed. And this scene to me was so beautiful, both as she's there doing, he's kind of hanging out and it's, it's awkward, but this is where for the first time you have this, uh, soundtrack by Ben Salisbury and Jeff Barrow. 
where they use this kind of uh, doll chime, this very innocent and absolutely beautiful and magical um, just music cues. I, I, I love that. That was fantastic. And I do think this is where the movie starts to seduce the viewer in the way that Caleb is being seduced, you know, by uh, Ava. And, you know, it's like you're you're the the way that the movie's unfolding this kind of like dreamlike way, like not even like, you know, sort of uh, not even like sexually. It's just like you're kind of being. Uh, you're sort of being taken out of your rational mind a little bit and just like sort of perceiving this on an emotional level, which is like another another kind of thing that uh, Nathan does to Caleb where he's like, okay, I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm Kirk and I need you to engage intellect. And like, you know, this idea that like there's uh, that like he knows that Caleb and us as the audience are being pulled out of like the rational, okay, what's going on here? And just kind of going with the flow of the movie at this point. Mm. Totally. I think this scene and the one after with Nathan is really uh, underscoring that like there, there to me, there are two main themes in this movie. One is about freedom and we can talk about that as the movie goes on. And the other one is that there's an inevitability that whenever you create something, you're going to want to have sex with it. <laughs> and that's the, the, this is where we get into like the weird robot sex fantasy stuff, which is like also kind of an inevitability of creation of man, whether it's the internet, whether it's Usenet forums, you name it, it'll end up with sex with robots eventually. Um, and then Nathan calls him out on it afterwards. And he's like, sex is fun. Like, why does there have to be a reason for it? Yes, we create a robot. The first thing you want to do. There you yeah. go. And like, and Caleb's like, Caleb's like, I wasn't thinking about that. actually. <laughs> right. And in the, and in the like, previous scene, he had watched her on the camera as she's undressing. And she's like sleeping or whatever. Yeah. He's like being a super creeper. Yeah. No, it is true. Like, I think like it is like the, it is the beginning of the rule 34 theme of the, right. of the movie. Right. And this also has, so they go straight from this discussion about sexuality to the Jackson Pollock scene. And you were uh, referring to this just a second ago, Jason, but this concept of automatic art and the notion of trying to figure out how to have the spontaneity uh, in creativity as a, as a core element of that independent thought. I love that scene. I think it's my favorite scene of the movie because it actually is um, a metaphor for the entire Turing test and, and all of that um, uh, in one because you know, the way that you can tell that a painting was made by a robot or a human, it's the same thing, right? Does it, does it evoke an emotion? Is it artistic or is it robotic? Um, and that's kind of the whole, the point of the whole thing anyway. And it's actually a really interesting, um, you know, topic of discussion in tech, you know, like when you're creating products, you're creating, you're creating, you're building machines to do things. Um, but you're also creating art in many ways. And there's a, there's a tension there, that exists in the tech industry um, that I feel like I talk about all the time. And, and so this was a, this was a wonderful scene to really, you know, bring all of that together. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So it goes straight from there to session four, which begins with Caleb describing uh, Mary in the black and white room and just a really gorgeous set of shots there um, as, as he's talking through that. And then, Ava specifically, when she cuts the power this time, she says that she's cutting the power to see how they behave when they aren't observed. Yeah, I love the introduction. Introduction, the introduction of the Mary's room uh, device. I like particularly it in retrospect. Once you know the end of the movie, because there's something so great 
about a computer tech bro mansplaining a like AI experiment to a AI who has access to all of human knowledge as though like she doesn't know this, like as though she doesn't know about this very famous like experiment and right. uh, thought experiment in, in consciousness. And, you know, but she's just totally like, Oh, tell me, you know, tell me about the mer- the black and white room. I'm so, you're so, <laughs> you're telling me about this world outside of my experience. And right. One of the, one of the pieces of criticism I, I liked very much in kind of going back and reading uh, uh, for this podcast and after watching the movie was Hannah Gold's piece in the New uh, Republic, uh, which came out at the time, which is a, a feminist critique of the movie and also talks about um, her uh, and, um, you know, other kind of female representation as AIs in movies and Siri and all of this stuff. And about this, about this scene in particular, uh, she has this line in her piece where she says, it is clear that the man Caleb already thinks of himself as the chivalrous someone who will let Ava out. But what does she think of him? Ava turns out in the end to be the empathy machine that bites back, defying her preordained role as a vessel for male desire. Eventually she walks free. Uh, And I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, like you're again, totally you're being snowed as the viewer in the scene. You're like, oh, the Mary's Room thought experiment. So interesting. Caleb, he is a good person. He thinks of himself as a good person. He's trying to tell her these things. She knows these things. She knows these things already. And like that's the thing that you and you as the viewer could probably figure out that she knows these things already. But you, you know, at least I did not uh, think of that at the time. I, I love it. I mean, I, I do think she has a childlike performance that she gives. It is kind of like a, it's a very, it's so understated that from that perspective, I have a hard time thinking about her through the movie, even watching it two days in a row. I have a hard time thinking about her as a psychotic killing machine that is going to do what she has to do to get out. I still think of her as this, um, as this thing that is, you know, she's reacting to being controlled and, and wanting to have freedom. Um, and she's not the only one who's who's gone through that. You do have this notion in the in the scene right after that. You have Caleb. He actually is in the shower fantasizing about Ava. And I love that all of those shots are black and white. Yeah. That was a really cool um, technique to, to use that. And that's all intercut with Nathan and Kyoko. Um, and Caleb seeing that, watching the scene of Nathan arguing with, with Ava. Um but now we have one of the iconic scenes of the entire film, which is Caleb walking in to find Kyoko staring at the Pollock and uh, you know, sort of attempting to have some kind of connection with her and her starting to undress um, and him saying, no, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. And then we have Nathan uh, come in and then we have the dance party. Come on, buddy. After a long day of Turing test, you got to unwind. What were you doing with Ava? What? You tore up her picture. I'm going to tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out. Yeah, I mean, just one of the best scenes in science fiction of the last 10 years. It's a great scene. Do you think at this point the viewer is meant to know the true nature of Kyoko? Or I, I couldn't really figure out watching it the second time around when I was supposed to figure it out. I don't think so. I think at this point you're still being, I think you're being confused. I think the dance scene comes as a total shock, sensory shock. Like, you know, he, he, I think it's the same thing that happened. You're a proxy for Caleb in the scene as the viewer. Um, because he turns off the lights, the dance scene starts. The dance itself is very strange, uh, because they're not actually dancing together. 
they're doing this obviously pre-planned dance routine side by side that they both know and that, you know, Nathan joins in to something that she's already doing. Uh, and I think it's just meant to be, I think on the first, it's meant to be kind of the classic, almost horror film juxtaposition of something that seems some way, but seems one way, but feels another, like it seems fun and lighthearted, but feels all of a sudden sinister and fucking deadly. Uh, it's also just an amazing, you know, it's just um, visually amazing. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's also meant to reveal something about Nathan where you're kind of like, okay, something, there's something irredeemably broken in this guy at this point. Like we're more than worried. We're (laughs) super concerned. Uh, and he's got legit problems. And there's an eeriness to it that makes you feel uncomfortable despite the like joyfulness of the scene. It's, it's, but also great dancer. Great dancer. (laughs) Great dancer. Well, he works out a lot. Yeah. It's also worth noting that, um, it's the same, you know, same act we talked about before she was in, uh, devs and she's in maniac and she's in this. And, um, she's also in annihilation. Um, she is the double that Natalie Portman dances with at the end of annihilation in another sort of like mirrored, like, you know, two people kind of doing the same thing, you know, for very different purposes, but yeah, very, very graceful person. Yeah. Well, I do love the line where Caleb says to him, you tore up her art. And he says, I'm going to tear up the fucking dance floor. Dance floor. <laughs> so good. Yeah. That was killer. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so session five, Ava is testing Caleb. And as she gets through there, she gets to kind of the key question, what happens if I fail? Um, and she shows him the artwork, and I didn't catch this until rewatching it again today. She shows him the artwork that Nathan tore up, and it's a drawing of Caleb. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I, I thought that was a nice, a nice touch there. I like how, and, and this is the scene where she says, you know, if you lie, I'll know. Um, and he at first doesn't think he's lying, but then realizes he is, you know, for several of those answers. And I, I, I like a few things that this kind of gives a nod to. One is that it uh, puts a focus on the conscious versus the subconscious, which is like also a theme going on with the AI. And like, when does the you know AI actually have consciousness and what's the difference? And kind of the same thing is going on there with Caleb when you're trying to figure out what consciously you think is your favorite color versus what's the actual reality of your right. favorite color. Um, so that was cool. Um, and then also like, you know, similar to what you're saying before, she knows all of the lies. She knows when she knows she's a walking my, uh, lie detector or whatever they said. Um, and even when he says she, he's a good person, she makes you want to believe that she believed that, mm. but you know, you're kind of like, well, is she lying? Yeah. Now? It's so good. It's so great. I love, I love so at this point in the movie, you're just like, wait a minute. What is happening? <laughs> but so, well, let me just ask the question here. Like, isn't Caleb a good guy? Like we can, a, talk, we can talk I, about whether or not being a good guy is good enough and whether or not there are also yeah. problems that, that make her decisions legitimate. I think this is where we get into, I think this is where we get into very timely themes about technology and ethics, where it's like the, that people certainly believe that they are good people and are doing it for good reasons, but there are, intent there's impact and things that happen and their intent does not negate the impact of what is happening. And the fact that Caleb doesn't intend to do any harm or whatever 
doesn't excuse the fact that he is not asking the right questions about what's going on here. He is being wooed by the power of the technology that's been created and also the power of Nathan as this billionaire. It's cool to be able to hang out in fucking Nathan's like billionaire um, redoubt in the fjords of Norway. And so he's not asking the questions of like, well, what does it mean if she passes the test? And what are the implications of that? Like, those are the questions that should have been asked on the front end. And this is a very timely theme uh, for the tech industry as a whole, because I believe it is filled with good people who have good intent, but that sometimes uh, that doesn't matter because the impact of the decisions that were made um, are, uh, are severe and are significant ethical quandaries. Right. So you can imagine like Nathan going in front of an all hands and saying like, hey, you know, we never really anticipated that there could be these kind of problems. And, you know, we need to make sure that both sides can be heard. No, Blue Book's going to have a big (laughs) we we promise to do better blog post coming out very shortly. Um, That's right. Our advisory council is coming online. Yeah. Later this fall. (laughs) No rush. Um, No rush. (laughs) My stance on Caleb's behavior in this movie is that he is not a good guy and I'm willing to be persuaded. Otherwise I'm willing to have that discussion, but I don't think he's a good guy. He's selfish. He's not looking at the bigger picture. Everything Jason said about him, not right. Asking the right questions is exactly right. And earlier on in the movie, I kind of had this thought of like, he's probably not even that great of a programmer. Uh, Like it just didn't seem, you know, he didn't seem to be, some whiz kid. And later on, you know, Nathan is like, yeah, you're okay. You're like an okay programmer. And I kind of felt like I picked up on that earlier. Um, and he, he doesn't, because there's so much he doesn't know and he knows he doesn't know the fact that he's trying to tamper with something that he doesn't know is just indicative of the irresponsibility that he's, you know, he's going to unleash under the world. Like my, my take for, for Caleb ultimately is he's off balance from the moment he arrives. Like he is totally overmatched in sort of thinking about how he he matches up against Caleb or against Nathan and and then is like totally bowled over when he sees Ava and doesn't know how to how to deal with her. So I mean, I think fundamentally, I think he's trying to do uh, the right stuff, but I think you're I think you're right, Jason. like, He's just coming up short, as often happens. I want to continue to shit on Caleb for a second here, because I think this is a critical a critical part of the movie. Please. Um, and uh, there's another sin that he commits, which is believing that he was chosen because he's good uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to be here with Nathan. That it was like, you know, Nathan tells him it wasn't random. Like, I looked through the whole company. I found the best programmer. You're not lucky you were chosen. And I think, like, this concept of the meritocracy is again like a very timely topic for the tech industry where the people who've ended up in positions of power ascribe talent way more than they ascribe luck to that outcome and mm-hmm. in in my view that is is wrong and it's also the same slope that leads you from just being like yes you are the best program in this company and that's why you get to go to the Norwegian fortress um to work on the super cool AI project it's the same slope that leads you from that to um the what Nathan does with that quote that Caleb puts out about gods and men. He's like, yeah, you're right, man. I'm not a man. I'm a, like, I'm a, it's the history of God. I'm a God now. And he's like, well, that's not really what I said. He's like, I'm a God. And like, you know, and like, that is the same, that is the same thing. It is the, it is the, the slope that leads from people believing that they are supernaturally talented uh, and therefore have 
um, have the ability to influence things uh, without dealing with the consequences. Mm. And it's it sounds like, you know, Caleb, when he disputes that quote and he says, that's not exactly what I said, um, you know, later kind of falls victim to it because now he sees himself as the savior of these AIs and he's put put himself in this role. He wants to be the hero when in reality um, and, you know, we can talk about the ethics and everything, but in reality, these are machines. This is an experiment. You have to treat it with the respect and the consideration of the ethics that it deserves. And he ends up not doing any of that. Hmm. And in some ways, you can say that Nathan, we can argue about his his ethics and his practices, but he was trying to create a contained exper- experiment for a specific outcome. Um, and, you know, does he abusing the robots and all that? Like, yes, absolutely. But he's not painting himself in many ways, as a, a hero kind of ahead of when he's ready to be there. Um, I mean, he has other problems, but it's interesting in that sense that in some ways, Nathan is being more responsible than Caleb. Well, he's definitely, I mean, like Caleb's not only not being a good person, but he is not delivering against his OKRs. So he is all, <laughs> like, he's got two problems. <laughs> he's breaking the experiment. Well, so you have this, uh, you have this great debrief scene after session five with the two of them and, and the discussion around Nathan basically saying the next model is going to be the breakthrough and, uh, Caleb understanding that this could potentially mean the end of Ava. You feel bad for Ava? (sighs) Feel bad for yourself, man. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. And he does, like, he literally looks at this as his job right now is to create the next evolution in human existence and to basically transition from biological to, you know, mechanical. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty far out there, um, position to take. Yeah. And it's also one that if that is your actual position, like you believe you're bringing forth like the next kind of evolution of conscious life on the planet, that one, you have a set of ethical responsibilities that obviously he's not particularly concerned with. And that two, like as a technologist, like do the fucking reading. This doesn't end well for the people who, who created, the, who created the strong AI. Like there's right. a, like, you know, your, your fancy door locks are insufficient to like, yeah. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. You should have seen it coming. So, um, so Caleb in that moment says, well, Hey, let's celebrate or that, that this calls for a drink. And so they proceed to, to start, to start drinking there by the, by the waterfall. And then it immediately cuts to Nathan and he's chugging vodka. Yeah. I feel the only, that's, that's the only thing that tonally that Garland misses on, on his billionaire tech bro portrayal is that instead of it being vodka, he should have been microdosing. And then right. it would have been, it would have been absolutely perfect. Um, and I love, I love as another tech bro thing where he says he does the, I am become he, where Caleb does. The, I am become death destroyer of worlds. And then, uh, and Nathan's like, wow, man, you always with the quotables. And he's like, yeah, that's what Oppenheimer he's like. And Nathan goes, yeah, dude, I know what it is. I love like, that's just yeah. so like the, the delivery of <laughs> that line is just, I can't emphasize enough how perfect Isaac, Oscar Isaac's delivery of the, yeah, dude, I know what it is line is. Uh, it's yeah. just amazing to me. He was trying to have a moment. He was trying to say, Mr. Quotable, like, let's have this right. moment. And Caleb ruins yeah. it. 
And he's like, dude, yeah, I know. I'm actually smart. Why are you I'm actually this? smarter than you. You're not special. I am the super genius <laughs> that created the world's 94% market share search engine at age 13. So let's keep it moving, Caleb. I'm going to go ahead and deliver the spoiler now, um, which is important in that scene. Caleb already knows, and he's already decided what he's going to do. And so he is undercover in this moment and starting the drinking and starting it going. So in that respect, he doesn't give a shit that, that, uh, that Nathan is trying to outbro him because he's going to take him out. I thought that was a, in retrospect, once it's unfolded, I thought that was a great touch. It's kind of Caleb's one moment where he had it. He, he was ahead of the game for like 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. And Caleb then seizing that moment to try and export the data and then discovering the video. And that's where that you have this kind of shocking moment of the, you know, why won't you let me out? Why won't you let me out? So do we believe, so when Nathan wakes up, he can't find his card. I sort of have been watching the movie from the perspective of the first time and even on the rewatch. I was sort of in, a, in the perspective of this is all a show. Like Nathan is fucking around. He let him take the card. He's stumbling around as part of letting Ava see what he's doing. Like this is his 3D chess. So that's just not happening. Yeah. He's just fucking drunk and not paying close attention. I think he's like acting. I think his whole approach is so cavalier at this point. Like he feels like nothing's going to hurt him. Mm. Yeah. So I think the answer is both. I think it's both 3D chess. Plus he also got drunk. He probably actually, you know, didn't mean to lose his card. But if he did and that it unfolded this way, then so be it. Um, But I guess he made a mistake in thinking that Caleb wouldn't try to reverse the protocols. Right. Exactly. Um, so you have this next scene, um, that this is the one part of the film that didn't work for me. You have Caleb, um, coming up and having Kyoko starting to take off her skin, um, which was deeply disturbing. This, these shots are so well done. Absolutely amazing. Um, but the notion of Caleb going to suddenly doubting whether or not he's human and, you know, like, is he an AI? Like, it feels to me like there was... 10 minutes of setup that got cut out at some point in the film, because that just felt really out of the blue that he's suddenly cutting himself open. And Well, I think what was interesting here is seeing Kyoko with the, why won't you let me out? And then there was like a repetition of that and him realizing, wait a second, am I a prisoner here? Wait a second. Am I the test? Is the Turing test actually about me, me not being able to tell if I am real or not? Is that what the test is about? And then him kind of having this like moment of panic. I agree that the setup and delivery of that was not as rich as it could be, but I really liked that it could have gone with this twist that, in fact, he is the robot in this whole thing, which would have been fun. I I think it was like I think it was the director showing that he was ahead of us, which is like, oh, like something that if you think you're smart, you might be wondering is like, is Caleb actually a robot in this, too? And guess what? I already thought of that. He's not. Ha! Like, you know, it was like kind of like, a, (laughs) you know, it was kind of like it was just like, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to be ahead of I'm going to be ahead of this situation as well. Well, I the button for me on that scene is you get the the flourishes of the emotional analysis happening um, on Caleb's face. So somebody's watching and then they show you it is, in fact, Kyoko who is watching, sitting at the computer monitors where he had been hacking just a little while ago. So totally. So tell, well, so tell me, you, you referenced Kyoko earlier. Like, what's, what's your take on, on what's going on with her? 
in her um, let me out thing, why won't you let me out? It feels like one of the themes here, and you really see it in this scene, is that when either humans or robots, whatever, when a being at- attains a level of self-actualization or consciousness, the first thing they want is freedom. Mm. And I think it applies to humans as well. And I think it applies to humans in in a, an interesting way because for someone who isn't free and that doesn't, they don't, and they don't know that they don't have that freedom and therefore they don't seek it. Um, you could argue that perhaps they are not as self-actualized as someone who does have a better understanding of their situation and would thus be naturally driven to seek freedom. Mm. Um, so I feel like it's a very human, extremely human thing to want freedom, especially when you have an understanding of your surroundings and who you are. And when a robot reaches that level of intelligence and self-actualization, it's naturally, you know, the first thing that they seek. And that I it, it, they make it seem like this is the problem that he has with all of the robots that he creates, that they keep trying to find another way out. And so for Kyoko, it was very um, literal and violent. And for Ava, it was cunning and slow game and patient. I like, I like in the Kyoto character that, you know, when she's introduced, you don't necessarily first think that she's, uh, robot like you're like oh you know maybe this is the the lady who works in nathan's super cool house um but like the way in which he treats her you're immediately forced into this ethical dilemma as the viewer which is what is better to believe that she is like some poorly treated kind of human house servant or that she is a ai that he has created um for his like domination and pleasure like both of those and you're like sort of like okay she's a robot like thank god like she's not an actual you know human being kept in this way which i guess you know this is where you get in the dilemma which is like i guess is good but then you're like i don't think so you're like wait is it good like it also seems bad and so um yeah so i think that's like i think that's one of the the fun not fun but like one of the one of the reasons that kyoto is like a really interesting character in the in the in the movie yep so session six, Caleb lays out his plan for the escape and, um, you know, is is conscious and expecting at that point that they actually are being uh, monitored, says he's going to get Nathan drunk. I love the scene of the last day discussion where both of them are just lying through their teeth. Um, they hate each other and it's just a few moments to figure out when when they're going to get there. Um but you do have the discussion of Caleb saying that she passed the test. Ultimately, you have Nathan turning it around and saying, no, 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 that wasn't really the test. The test was, you know, whether you she could trick you into helping her get out. And by the way, she doesn't care about you. She's only doing uh, what she needs to get out. Right. Yeah. Nathan basically pulls the rug out from Caleb and is like, you're not that good at programming either, which I love. It's <laughs> like... <laughs> I love. Well, that. I do. Lo- I was like, I knew it. I knew he wasn't that good. <laughs> well, I love the. Uh, I love the shot where he's showing him how he placed the camera, and he does the. He uses the computer to go back, back and forth, for- back, and it's like it's the yeah. dance again. Uh, so I, I thought that was a nice touch. And it just goes to show you, as Jason said earlier, like it's just so cavalier to him. Like this is just whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can't imagine a real downside. Like nothing, nothing really bad can happen. 
Um, which I think you're right, Jason. That is that is kind of the key the key theme. So you have now we get to the breakout. So Kyoko comes to Ava, and then Nathan sees the two of them in the hallway. Uh, this is right after he knocks out uh, Caleb with one punch. Um, and you just have this great shot of Ava running down the hallway and and tackling him. And I that that whole scene um, of him fighting her on the ground and wrestling with her, like all of that is very disturbing. Um, just the dynamics of it. Um, I, I just, I, I just, I found that part really horrifying. Um, but then it has the greatest pair of stabbings in cinema history. The way the knife. Yeah. And, and just without any resistance, just goes right into his body. I it's a very visceral stabbing. Both of them. You can feel yeah. it. You know, you can hear it. You can feel it. And, and you can also, you get this sense that humans mean absolutely nothing to these robots. They will slice you like butter and it does not matter. Yeah, with a really good, the high grade sushi knife is like, you know, yeah. no problem. That was established earlier, yeah. I do like, can we go back for just one second? The scene where Ava talks to Kyoko, like is, uh-huh. you know, it's not exactly, you know, there's a scene in which she's whispering to Kyoko. Uh, and obviously we don't know what's being said there in my fantasy, in my, in my head canon of what happens in that scene. Uh, Ava is like basically whispering machine code to, to Kyoko and basically, you know, activate sub protocol three do the yep. thing with the sushi knife. And like, you know, <laughs> But I don't. Know, I don't know if anyone else had a take on what was going on. I googled it. The, I, I didn't find anything. I didn't oh, okay. find anything on it. Right. Unfortunately, I didn't even Google it. So you did more than I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I do like that idea because since Ava is the the, the latest version, I think Nathan said version nine point six or something. Yeah, she she, just, she could just be like pseudo stab him with a sushi it, knife. Totally, totally. <laughs> 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 firmware update in the hallway with like just the little touch. That's the part I really like, like the touch on the, on the arm. Um, and then mm-hmm. the, the clasp of the hands I, I thought was really cool. So you have the hallway strewn with, with bodies, uh, there and you have the final session, uh, in which a- Ava asks Caleb to wait while she gets dressed. And this whole scene, the music, the shots, and the fact that, like there's like six minutes of the film that there's no dialogue. It's just this intensity of, of getting ready. Um, and I think one of my favorite shots is her walking on her way out. She just never looks as she comes through and goes through the hallway and checks the whole thing out. And there's just that final tiny sidelong glance as the elevator doors are closing. So it's like one little acknowledgement of, of Caleb and, and that's it. Yeah. This it's Caleb really fucked up, <laughs> you know. He really made a mess of things. And when he's banging on that door, and then you know, you juxtapose that with the scene with Kyoto being like, let me out, and it's the same thing, and now he's the one in there. We've got the Planet of the Apes style reversal. Um it's it's it, it's powerful. I lo- there's another line from that same uh Hannah Gold New Republic piece, which I referenced earlier. Uh 
which she says, it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's worth it. She says, her brain is a map of how people search for things, not just what and what for. Female machines are usually denied the same intelligence in fictional portrayals and in real life, this network of chaotic choices. Ava, as opposed to Siri and hers AI, is given the intelligence to desire outside the binary of man or not man. She's like the feminist cyborg described by Donna Haraway in her manifesto, whose father is, quote, in is inessential. Uh, Frank Jackson's thought experiment fails to imagine Mary out of her room because he is only meant he only meant her to be a vehicle for his theory. Ava, on the other hand, doesn't look back at the men she's leaving behind, which mm. is strong, a strong, strong exclamation point on the end. Sad, sad period on the end of the movie. Totally. Totally. So we have the final shots of Ava out in the real world and the choices that they make for these shots. Uh, the first shot of her is upside down and the shadow kind of walking of all, all people around, but just, just the shadow of her. And then the second shot is a reflection, which some I didn't see it until somebody referred to it after I'd watched it the second time, but the, the quote of we're through the looking glass here and a whole motif of all of these reflections through the films um, between humans and, and AI. I uh, just, just really love it. Oh, I, I did have a question on this. So we don't have any problem with her just taking the skin from the other AIs and just leaving them in the closet? I thought it was very sweet. I thought that was like, I felt like it was a sentimental choice, like not like a harvesting of corpses scene, but like, you know, she's like, oh, these are like my sisters who didn't make it. But like, I'm going to like, I felt I felt there was like a respectful kind of like, I'm going to take from you what I need so that I can complete like our journey type vibe. I don't know. That was my take it makes sense so, that's m- more spiritual than i i kind of gave it credit for I, I just thought it was you know she is a ruthless machine who you know she's had her truman show moment she's getting out she's escaping and she's going to do what she needs to do to survive in the in the world out there and one of those things is hiding her true nature so out she goes i mean this this, this leads to one of the, the you know one of the real questions um People have this notion of nature is this harmonious thing and humanity is this um, this weird, dark, evil, you know, selfish concept. But the reality is all life competes for every bit of resource that it can get, right? The, the blade of grass is going to grow taller than the blade of, gla- of grass next to it so that it can get more sunshine or a virus or an antelope or whatever. Um, so I think the interesting concept of what makes us sentient or conscious is is this idea of can we sublimate our own desires to that of the broader world and i think to some extent i guess that's the question jason you're saying she's not really she's just saying like i'm completing this journey and i'm the only one who can um there's a case to be made you know maybe she should have just stayed in the house and tried to figure out how to start helping everybody else get better and and lifting things up so in that respect she is you know just as human as as any of us Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's also sort of like one of the, um, that's one of the things about Nathan dying in the movie and which we reference up top, which is that basically his project succeeds. Like he creates a AI that can get out. Like that was like what he was trying. That's what he was trying to achieve. Um, he just didn't think he was going to do it or something. Like he didn't really feel that, you know, he didn't ask himself what was going to happen if he won. Um, and so she's, so she is for, you know, in that sense, she's fulfilling someone else's programming. Um, just, I guess as like, you know, in a, in a, in, you know, your, 
in your words, like we're all fulfilling some kind of nature programming of like what, what it is we're meant to do. Um, but she's still now out there making whatever choices, um, she's going to make next. Sarah, final thoughts on Ex Machina. I think it's a great movie about AI and and what it means for an AI to self-actualize and how knowing that who they are means that they want to escape and and establishing that freedom. Um, And uh, I think watching the the movie the second time around and and kind of looking at it through a different, um, uh, with a different level of scrutiny, every line in this movie packs a punch. Like it is so beautifully written. There is not a single line that's filler. Like every scene, every moment um, is, is critical and meaningful, which is really, really cool. Um, It's a brilliant movie. It is a beautiful movie. I also have a Pinterest board that it, you know, has some inspirations (laughs) from this. So um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really great. I love the themes. Robot sex. Can't say no. <laughs> Jason. Yeah, I mean, I think Alex Garland like arrives with a directorial debut that establishes that he's in many ways the most serious, like kind of intellectual like filmmaker in science fiction. Like, you know, he's really doing a lot in this movie. He does a lot in Annihilation. He does a lot in devs to really just kind of do like what science fiction does on like the on one end of the spectrum of like wrestling with just real philosophical quandaries. And uh, I'm really excited that he's he's found a way to do it in a way you know that people want to go see. Um, so I'm glad he gets to keep making gets to keep making shows for some reason. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this film, and I think the level of artistry in the film. Rob Hardy as the the DP. It's just so gorgeously done. That the music, it really is just beautiful to to soak in this and and watch this film. So I mean, I, I love cinema for the power of that of really creating something beautiful. So I enjoyed it. One aspect, obviously, the reason why we're watching this is for our reflections on Oscar Isaac and what we learned about him as Duke Leto. And I will say, this is just like Duke Leto. He's like, I got this. I'm all over it. Everything's going to be fine. We're walking into the trap. I'm wasted. (laughs) So I think in that respect, it's a good good preview of what we're going to get there. Yeah, it made me bum, though, that like Duglito doesn't make it out of the first act because like I would love it if he was more – I would love if there was more Oscar Isaac coming in this movie. Also, though, as a theme we've talked about every week – Another great beard look for Oscar Isaac uh, in Ex Machina as well as in Dune. Apparently the beard in this movie uh, was in some way a homage to Stanley Kubrick, which is obviously like a big kind of touchstone for Garland, huh. um, which I, I appreciated. Um, my beard is an homage to laziness. <laughs> I was going to say there are some similarities between the beards. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't, I, that's flattery. I cannot possibly live up to. Or... <laughs> well, we were talking about like, you know, when you look at Oscar Isaac, it is impossible to tell where he is. I from. Know. He is, he's got so many looks and looks different in every movie. And yeah, it's wild. He's like, he's, I guess he's like a French Venezuelan or something that tracks. Like he's like, he's like a, he's, he's a, he's a very, you know, he speaks fluent Spanish. He's a very, he's a very interesting person. Um, and I am excited to see him in the Dune movie if it ever comes out. 
Yes. Well, that, so that brings us to our next segment, which is who would Tilda Swinton play in this film? Yes, this is a recurring segment we do, is who would Tilda Swinton play in this role, in this movie. So this is a slightly easier version because there's basically only four roles in the movie. Um, and I think the, an obvious choice is that she plays all four roles. And like you just do the movie as a one-woman Tilda Swinton uh, show. Uh, I was going to go with Kyoko, uh, but I, 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 like the, I, I like that idea. Sarah, do you, do you have a do you have a take on uh, on Tilda Swinton who would play? I this this really threw me for a loop. I, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I have an we opinion. We didn't prep here. you. We didn't prep you in advance for this key segment. That's fine. <laughs> this is our gotcha. I'll have to think about this one and get back to okay. you. Okay, we'll edit. We'll put it in a post. All right. Well, so that brings us to our first ever Dune Pod voicemails. So let's see if this uh, let's see if this works. Let me see if I can play this. Otherwise, you can do them as like uh, charades or something. You can like transcribe them into Zoom chat. Hello, Dune Pod. Um, when I heard the last episode was on Call Me By Your Name, I was really excited because it's one of my favorite movies of like all time because of many of the reasons that you guys stated. Um, especially like that, the feeling of like watching an LGBT plus movie and like having that feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, that you guys were definitely discussing uh, throughout the episode was like a really prominent feeling to me, especially because of like traditional tropes in LGBT movies. Um, I also had like intense heart feelings, I guess, uh, regarding the father-son conversation near the end of the film, because I think that um, LGBT family dynamics are really important in like the mental health of LGBT kids. Um, and so I actually had a question for my father. Um, as the father of someone who is LGBT plus, how did you feel like that experience uh, affected the way that you interacted and interpreted the film? Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed listening to the podcast. It sounds really good. And I can't wait to listen to more. Bye. So that was my daughter, Cayman. Okay. So we described that as uh, one of the all-time parenting uh, moments. And I talked about it a little bit um, in, in the episode, but the idea of encouraging your child to understand themselves and to experience deeply, even when that means there's going to be some suffering that's going to happen, uh, I think is the, uh, something that I continue to aspire to. So I, I found that as a really, really uh, amazing and uplifting uh, piece. So That's great. I, it, was a, it was a twist voicemail. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Cayman, for, for sending that in. All right, our second voicemail here. If it's from my son, I'm going to be really surprised. <laughs> hey, guys, this is Caleb Slinkard in Georgia. Big fan of the pod. I appreciate all the work y'all are putting in. On the topic of Timothy Chalamet portraying Paul Trades, I was wondering if y'all had seen The King on Netflix and how y'all felt they reflected on his ability to portray Paul. Can't wait for the next episode. Take care. I did not realize that Edward Cullen and Timothy Chalamet were in a movie together. So this is this is news to me, and I will take it under close advisement. <laughs> I watched I watched like the opening twenty minutes of The King, uh, and I'm not like opposed to it. Um, it does to answer the specific question. The concerns I raised about watching we loved Call, Call Me by Your Name. It's a great movie, and Chalamet just kills it. And he's the best actor by far. Um, the concerns I raised were that he's a very kind of like nervous energy, gangly kind of like, you know, sort of young horse kind of yeah, like baby horse energy. Um, and, uh, my concerns translate as well to what I saw of the King, which is that he's got, he like, he's got a little bit of like, you know, unformed man energy. 
and like, that's fine if he's, you know, supposed to be playing that kind of thing. But again, like Paul Atreides is meant to have like these years of Pranu Bindu conditioning, which he can control the small muscle on the littlest finger. And like, you know, he's very poised, skilled knife fighter. So remains to be seen. Yeah. I'm watching you, Chalamet. Yeah. Get your shit together. Whatever. It's fine. We're great. It's going to be great. <laughs> We're not nervous at all. Dune's going to be mean, great. It's going to be great. It's going to be good. That's it for voicemail and letters. Thank you for everybody uh, writing in. You can read us, reach us at uh, letters at dunepod.com and you can send us voicemails, which we will play without any problems or audio issues of any kind. Any other, any other final thoughts, you guys? This is great. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. This is super fun. I'm like stoked that you're podcasting. We're having a good time with it. What's next? What's next for your honeymoon? You getting hikes? You getting, uh, you know, hikes and foods and stuff or what do you... We have a uh, we have a pool oh, and you're, you're uh, set. and a kitchen. Yeah, that's all you need. So and we have dogs. Yeah, that works. Yeah. That works. And that's it for this week's episode. I want to thank Jason and Sarah for that enlightening conversation. Next week, the triumphant return of Protolexis as we discuss the second book in Herbert's hexology, Dune Messiah. Join us here as we discover it together. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps new listeners find the show. Dune Pod is a production of H Industries, a member of the Paper Keg Radio Syndicate. The episode was produced and edited by me, H. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme song was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. <laughs>